Hello and welcome to the next edition of Law Firm Founder Conversations. And I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome Joy Deep Hall of People and Culture Strategies in Australia. Joy Deep is the founder and managing principal. He and his firm are market leaders in advising multinational businesses and also very senior executives on really complex and sensitive employment law issues in Australia and with international dimensions. His firm is interesting as well because it has a, a very particular management consulting and training piece relating to workplace issues, which I think gives his business such an interesting extra dimension. Joy Deep and I are very long-standing friends. We talk about law firm founder issues a lot, uh, notwithstanding time differences and many thousands of miles apart. So I'm absolutely delighted to have you with us for this conversation, Joy Deep. I, I really appreciate your time, especially when I know how busy you are. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I'm, I'm delighted to be speaking to you. So we are going to jump straight in. Tell me, what do you think makes for a successful law firm founder? I think the most critical ingredient for a successful law firm founder would have to be clarity of vision and clarity of purpose. And, and when I talk about that, I, I'm not necessarily talking about them having to have you know, a grandiose vision of what it is that they want to do with their firm. But I think they need to have the, the clarity of being able to answer in respect of themselves why it is that they are doing what they are doing. What, why are they about to embark on this particular venture? And, and there are so many questions that flow from that. What, what do they personally want to get out of it? What, what is the purpose of the organisation or entity that they're going to create for others, be that clients or the community or the profession or whatever else? Or, or, or what, is, what is it going to stand for as an employer or a, um, or a place to work for people? And, and then you start getting into the issues that are perhaps more longer term around, well, where do I want to take this? How, much, how big do I want it to be? How much do I want to grow? But without that clarity of both personal and professional vision and purpose, it's really hard to, to, to be successful. And I think that the ones who are able to be very articulate, even though they're going to do so without the foresight of how things are going to play out, are the ones that are going to be successful. So, so you and I have been running our respective firms for a while. So we've been going for 15 years and you've been going for how many years? Come up to 11. Yeah. So like, you know, you've sort of seen the market change. You've had to deal with a lot of issues. Do you think the skills that law firm founders need have changed in that sort of decade or more? I think that some of the core skills around, let's call it um, enterprise or uh, being an entrepreneur have, have not really changed. I, I think some of the challenges around execution have certainly changed. And, and I think some of the management and operational challenges have certainly changed. I think the, the people piece, the, uh, the attraction and retention of talent piece is, is, I think, a lot harder now than um, it, it was even for when, when, when I set up PCS in, in, in 2010. So I, I do think some of those aspects have, have evolved, but some of the core things I think are, are, are unchanged in terms of the, the, the hunger or what someone, you know, referred to as the fire in the belly that I think all, all law firm founders and, and any business founder really needs to have and probably do have even just by virtue of them contemplating doing something like this. Yeah, yeah. What really struck me, I, I don't know whether you've heard of our uh, England football manager, Gareth Southgate, 
know whether he would have ever come across your radar. But one of the things that you know he's described as being a great leader because he combines sort of uh, kind of classic and modern leadership skills. And one of the things he apparently has is just tremendous empathy. You know, like mm. for, for his players, and that seems to me um, almost like the new thing that's being really uh, emphasized these days that, you know, obviously you have to have the strategy, you have to be entrepreneurial, you have to be you know, financially savvy, but also you have to be deeply empathetic as a leader. And, and that seems to me as a, a law firm founder, it's important, uh, but, you know, you have to be really, you have to work at it really hard. And I just, I just wonder, is that something that, that you found as a necessary skill because I know you've got you you are super empathetic in how you deal with people but has that been a, a really positive attribute for you yeah I think it's a really interesting point and I mean so so much of what you're just saying I think is um is, is worth exploring in more detail I think one challenge that a founder owner has that is that is qualitatively different to that of another senior leader is that if if you are a senior leader who is not an owner or, or certainly not a, a, a majority owner, I think it is a lot easier to focus on, let's call it best practice management skills and leadership skills than it is if you are a leader who is an owner. Because it's very hard to separate the ownership aspect and all of the challenges and stressors associated with that from from the leadership, the, the two become so so entwined. I think one's leadership style, the manner in which a person um, demonstrates empathy, can't but be influenced by the fact that that person is is an owner. So uh, the most simple example: a staff member coming to you as a leader, where you are not an owner, and saying, "I'm not exactly happy working here anymore." You can sit down with that person. You can say, well, talk to me about that. And, and, and you can be a friend and you can be a guider and you can be a mentor. When you're an owner and that person has that conversation, you will try to do those things. But if I'm speaking honestly as myself, I'm thinking, okay, well, if you leave and the upshot of this conversation is you leaving, I'm going to need to hire someone. I'm going to need to incur a recruitment agency fee. I'm going to potentially be without a staff member. And it's really hard to, to say, well, look, I'm going to forget all of those ownership dimensions and just be a, a pure leader. And that's why I, I'm envious in some ways of those people who don't have to bear those ownership responsibilities. Um, and if I look at myself over my career, and I often say this, if I go back 15 or probably well, longer than that, probably closer to 20 years, I was the one that everyone wanted to work for when I was a senior associate. Because I was the approachable one. I was the fun one. I was the one who gave the best career advice and all of those kinds of things. And you know, people were literally knocking down the door to, to work for me in my team because I had all of those attributes. I still think that I have those attributes, but my ability and capacity to demonstrate those is, is limited and impacted by the fact that I'm now so much more torn in a hundred other directions. And the ownership part of it, which goes with the territory of being of, of being a founder, I think is, is, is a big part. And, and I think that's not to say that founders can't be like that, but if you can get to a scale where you as a founder have set up the business and you are able to be less torn in terms of your time, then you can invest a lot more in a lot of those really good, good people practices. 
So, Joydi, tell us about the journey that you've been on over the last sort of decade and more, setting up your business and kind of growing it and growing it to this sort of really sort of internationally known and respected firm. Yeah, I, I think it's been very interesting as I reflect on uh, my journey. I think as a as, as a lawyer, starting as a as, as a clerk in uh, in in one of the large commercial firms, and then moving into a specialist firm, but still a very traditional firm. Uh, and, and I guess that the realization that I had throughout the course of, of that uh, career evolution was that the, the, the practice of law was immensely reactive. And, and it was, it really bothered me that in order for me to be successful, I almost was reliant on others to have failed. I was kind of reliant on clients to have done things wrong or for things to have gone wrong or mistakes to have been made or for someone to initiate a process of litigation or someone to have conflict. In an environment where that just seemed so archaic, given how society was was progressing, it struck me that it would be so much better to create a business and brand a business that was focused on working with organisations to prevent those issues from occurring. And in order to do that, I, I, I needed to effectively reinvent what the, the practice of law would, would be. And in, in setting up this particular firm, I, I, I did have that clarity that I, I wanted to be seen as a genuine business partner and, and not just using that phrase as a, as a, as a catchy marketing phrase, but but genuinely be seen as someone who is almost indispensable to an organization's decision making as though we were right in their organization. So how has that sort of worked in practice then in terms of you know how you operate, how you partner with the clients? Yeah, so so it, it, it's had to to straddle all aspects of our firm from the from the naming of the, the business in a in a manner which is so non-legal. I mean a people and culture strategies was almost a deliberate attempt and you know, almost a, um, a provocative attempt and statement to the market that, you know, I challenge you to believe that we are still a law firm, even though this is our name. And, you know, I was lucky in that uh, I was able, you know, I started this practice with a fairly significant client base and um, I had some very valued client relationships that I knew would follow me regardless of what the name of the business was. But the name then led into our pricing structures and it, it led into the fact that we were an incorporated um, incorporated business rather than a partnership and lots of lots of things like that. But we wanted to, we needed to be modern. We needed to be pragmatic. Our style, our brand needed to be a lot more commercial and commercially savvy rather than old school traditional lawyer. And, and then ultimately it was about, well, could I then get the people around me who could help me execute on that? Because there were always going to be limitations. And um, that that has on balance, I think, worked. But that has not been easy because that skill set I don't think comes naturally to a lot of lawyers. Um, lawyers, in my experience, are a lot more comfortable dealing with that, um, that traditional perception and mindset of I will fix something when you stuff it up and you come to me rather than, well, actually, how can I put things in place that stops you from stuffing things up? So for me, to I was able to sell that and, and, and a lot of people embraced it, at least in what they were saying, but were they able to actually demonstrate a changed way of thinking? Well, some were better than others. 
but you know, the, I, I think because we have not, while we have always, I've loved change and I've loved, as I've said to you, and we've talked about before, Claire, in previous conversations, I've loved the mistakes that I've made. I love the failures. You know, the successes have been great, but the failures have been even better. Um, because that because that's how we've learned and 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 this constant agility around okay we've tried that didn't work back to the back to the drawing board and and there's still a lot of things which um, I had talked about as uh, wanting to do when I set up the firm that um, I haven't even gone close to doing and I don't even know whether I will but that's all part of the part of the journey. But it's a it's a really interesting idea the extent to which. As a, as a kind of a, a law firm founder in a, a team which will inevitably have sort of more limited resources, the extent to which you can afford to fail, to um, sort of try something, fail, fail fast, move on, do something else. I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I often say to my team, you know, my gift to you is my mistakes mm-hmm. and how I've learned from them and recovered from it. That's actually the best stuff that I can give you. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's kind of the extent to which as a, a first generation firm, you have the, the bandwidth to make those mistakes and recover from them and then move on. You know, that how many times you can do that or what level of kind of making a mistake on a project. And I don't mean a technical mistake. I just mean a strategic, you know, you, you go down an avenue, you might invest quite a lot of time and energy and money and and uh, resources into it and then sort of how to pull the plug quickly and move on and know when to yeah, move on. Definitely. And I, and I think I'm, I'm very um, open and, um, and proud of the fact that I, I wanted to, to, at least in the first few years of the firm, expand. And um, while I knew we were strong in Sydney and I knew that the track record of firms who had branched out into other um, major Australian cities like Melbourne and Brisbane had been the vast majority of them had failed and I knew that going into it but I still um, wanted to do it in the hope that I could be one of the few successful ones and my journey ended up not being any different to those who, who hadn't failed but the one thing was that I was able to get out quickly. How long did you give it? Well, we were we were out of um, uh, both markets in less than in two years I think for, for Melbourne um, and and less than less than that for Brisbane, but um, I was pretty clear around the people who I was reliant on to um, set set up, particularly Melbourne. That I'd said to that person who was coming to us from a, a larger commercial firm that let's just let's let's just be really open that we'll give this two years and we'll give it a, a really good go for that two years, but let's not commit to anything beyond that. And so when it got to towards the end of that period for us to be able to have a mature conversation. And she said, look, this is just too hard for me, not in terms of the practice of law, but the, you know, running, running an office and, and all of those things. And I said, well, it's actually probably too hard for me in terms of trying to um, maintain the success of our, of our original brand and, and me trying to expand. And I know I was spreading myself very thin um, and, and, and I was starting to feel like, well, uh, am I just doing this for the sake of, of this expansion? And the, the building of this narrative that, oh, look at us, we're so good. I've set up a business and look at us now. We are now in three different cities rather than one. And I, I think for me, it took a lot of maturing. And, and that maturity to the point about what founders need to be mindful of is what's their quest for maturity and how can they expedite that maturity as a founder, not as a, as a person, but, but as, a, as a business owner and as a founder. And I think you can talk about, um, the things that are important, 
But realistically, what I've now learned is that it's not about the number of people. It's not about the locations. For, for me, it's about is, is our value proposition relevant on an ongoing basis and continuing to be relevant? And is the firm achieving the, the financial targets that, that we need to achieve? And ironically, if you're looking purely at profit, and, and, and our experience has shown that we've actually been a lot more profitable with lower numbers um, than we have with, with far more significant numbers. And, and, and that has been part of my maturity in terms of realising actually this can work really, really well if we are leaner and I can do more of the things that I want to do and I can do it better um, than if I am chasing this notion of expansion almost for expansion's sake or growth for growth's sake. So just to sort of pull that all together, then, I mean, if there are other firms, sort of first-generation firms that are thinking about sort of international expansion or just multi-office expansion. I mean, it's it's very live in the UK because, you know, we've, we've Brexited. Firms are thinking about, well, you know, what's our strategy on Europe? Do we need an actual presence there? How do we do that? But I'd be interested to hear from you, you know, what you think someone who's a law firm founder should be thinking about, you know, if they are contemplating another office, whether in the same country or internationally. Yeah, I, I think if you look at the the businesses in professional services who are comfortably or at least more comfortably able to set up an international office or a different location office. The, the, the large accounting firms do it well. The large global firms do it well. And the, I think the reason why they are able to is because their brand is so well recognised. And secondly, their brand is not associated with any one or small group of individuals. And so if you're going to be, and this has been my experience, that whatever the firm might be called, the brand is still very much about me and my personal brand. So if I had wanted to be successful in a different market or overseas, I think I could be, but it will take me. It will take me to invest a couple of years of my life in order to do that. Yeah. And, the, and that was not the model through which I chose to expand it. And I think for that reason, the consequences were almost inevitable. And you can't compare the nature of our businesses with these massive firms where, you know, as you know, if it's a PwC or a, you know, one of the, the, the big four accounting firms, it really doesn't matter. Yes, you do have your preferred contact people there and whatever else, but you are dealing with that firm. And so a PwC or an EY or whatever, they can set up a shingle anywhere, really, and it's their logo and it's their brand, and that's what will attract people. Whereas it doesn't really matter what PCS is called, but if the brand is still associated with and people talk about, oh, that's Joy Deep's firm, well, we've got the firm, but we don't have Joy Deep. Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I think the, the lesson for, for founders, that's not to say don't, don't, not be ambitious, by all means, be ambitious, have lofty ambitions. But when it comes to that growth and the expansion, just, just be circumspect in terms of uh, it's exciting and it's great and it feeds the ego and, it, it you know, it makes for great conversations for, with people about, oh, wow, aren't you doing well? You now have three offices or 10 offices or 20 offices. But is it really fulfilling you in terms of how you want to be fulfilled? Yeah, we, we did look a couple of times at potentially opening like a representative office in New York because, you know, a lot of our kind of work 
flows from the US on the employer side. And um, we looked at it strategically and for various reasons, it, it sort of just wasn't the right thing to do. And, you know, I would, it was one of those things, you know, as a founder, it was my dream, you know, it, it, when we set up the firm, but actually, you know, you were sort of like draining the resources dry mm. um, and, you know, what would actually be the critical value. And it just would have needed me to be there. I think that right. was the, you know, to really drive it, um, at least for, you know, in, in the first few years. Um, but interesting, you know, you have to have your dreams, but whether you should live all of them is another matter. Um, yeah. Now you and I are both uh, graduates of different uh, business management programs. I think you did yours earlier than uh, earlier in your sort of development as a law firm founder. So I know. So I did something called the Goldman Sachs Ten Thousand Small Businesses mm. Program, which was yeah. was like you know the closing scene in the Matrix for me when Keanu's standing there and you know everything just <laughs> uh, turns into kind of what is a binary code and you suddenly go oh now I get it yeah. now I understand so it sort of revolutionized my approach to business and how I saw it and how I understood it and I know that you are a graduate of the Harvard owner president management program and yeah. you've talked incredibly highly about that what did you um, what did you take from that program that's really helped you to drive um, your firm? It, it really was the, without exaggeration, the, the, the best thing that I have ever done in, in, in my life, certainly professionally. It was the ability of those who were the faculty to cut through everything, the, the, the way that they can give you feedback, even in only a five-minute conversation, because all of these if, you know, everyone with 170 odd participants from 40 different countries around the world, and everyone wants a, you know a five minutes of this particular um, professor's time about their own business and 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 whatever. But they their, their ability to just condense things and simplify things and and avoid jargon and and theory and and make everything so digestible and relevant. And, and there are so many, so many examples that I can give. I remember a discussion I had with the, the relevant marketing professor who, um, when I was sharing with him the idea that I kind of wanted to build a, you know, a, a, a training business and a consulting business, um, but how do I do that if, if we are regarded and seen by the market as a law firm and, and the challenges of, of doing that? And, and he introduced me to the, the, this concept of sub-branding. And he said, you know, call it whatever you want to call it, but effectively say, well, that's, you know, PCS training by people and culture strategies or, or call it whatever. But you, you, you need to not throw out the, the part of your brand that has been successful and use that as a vehicle for, 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 the, for the other things that you're, you're going to do. And, you know, we, we may come to it separately, but, the, but this whole question that had bothered me pretty much when I started that program of how much time should I be spending on the tools directly as opposed to, because everyone tells you that, oh, well, you know, if you're the founder or you're the, you're the owner, um, you know, you shouldn't be, you should be working on the business. You shouldn't be working in the business. And, you know, that, that becomes this mantra and you, you feel like you are somehow a failure in some ways um, or unsophisticated if you're still very much you know, on the tools and, and, and doing and working in the business. And I, I had the most amazing conversation with um, uh, uh, Professor Ashish Nanda, who was, was unique because he was the dean of Harvard Law School, but also was one of the faculty of Harvard Business School. 
And I remember it was at the end of a long day and I went into the room. I felt so bad because he was so tired. He'd been teaching and then he'd been having all of these, you know, catch-ups with the, with, with the students. And, and I put this proposition to him and he just very simply said, the theory about don't work in the business, work on the business, holds true in every industry except for professional services. And he said, and I'm going to give you two reasons why. Firstly, if you work on the business and not in the business, your clients will be unsatisfied. Your clients want you. Your clients need you. He said, secondly, internally, you will lose credibility with your team. And, and you do see this playing out a lot with other firms who appoint CEOs and whatever else. And, you know, they're trying to, to lead professional services firms. And, and, and there are those lack of respect type issues because they don't see that person as doing what, uh, what, the, what the lawyers do. So then, I, I, so those are, really, those are really powerful points. And I do think there is a tension between working on the business or kind of being in the trenches, out of the trenches. Hmm. How do you balance that? Because I know that you are, and you know, and you talked about being in a leaner firm actually made it more profitable, but that obviously means that you are doing a lot more of the, the client work, which I am sure the clients absolutely are loving. Um, so then how do you manage that balance then between uh, driving and, and building the business sort of longer term, making it successful and also delivering for the clients kind of, at all the sort of random hours of the day that clients inevitably want. How do you do that? And keep your sanity and your physical health as well. I mean, that is, that's a lot. It, 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 it is a lot. And, and I, I, I don't think, if I'm being really honest, I don't think that I do it well. I certainly don't do it in the manner that I would like to be doing it. But that's not to say that I, I, I'm not deriving a huge amount of enjoyment from it. I, I am. And I am probably enjoying the, the, the points of connectivity with clients far more so now. Um, and, and if I can say this without wanting to come across as um, arrogant or conceited, but I think when you do appreciate, and, and I think you have to in what we do, Claire, and I've said this to you, that we, we are to an extent iconic in our markets and that for a client, when they get to deal with someone who is iconic, it's not to say that we're necessarily the best or that there aren't very, you know, very good people, but, but we're, we're in the league. We're in, we're in that group of people. And clients are saying to us, well, if I can get you, of course I will want you. And that's actually, apart from being very flattering, it opens up so many possibilities of new relationships and thought leadership and, and how you can influence and, and that create this wonderfully virtuous cycle of experimenting, creating results, creating a new brand and further experimenting. And mm. I'm, that's the part that, that, that I'm loving and the confidence with, it, with which you're developing strategies and you're, you're guiding clients through things and um, it, it, it's great. And I think it, that that happens over time. And I think that in fairness happens to people regardless of whether they are founders or not. But the, the opportunity is, well, if I can do that and my clients are happy, not only happy, but seem to be delighted with the fact that I am doing it, they don't seem to be balking at, at whatever my rate is and it's mutually rewarding. Why not? Yeah, um, and, I, and I think that there's a there's a point where you, um, you you have to say, well, realistically, 
am I going to be doing this for the next 30 years? Probably not. Uh, am I going to be doing it for 10, probably 15? Um, yeah, but, so, but, I, I, but I think in, in some ways the timeframes are irrelevant. You're, um, you're going to do what, for me, it's always about the enjoyment. So, so long as I'm enjoying it, I'm not bothered by the other things that I could be doing or the other uh, plans that I might have. I'd say for, for me, two things. I do find there's a tension between, so there's so much to do, especially as the team grows, uh, to, to sort of build and maintain and ensure the success and the talent development of all the people around you, on the one hand, and also bring in the work and look after the clients. Um, I find that a daily tension. But what I, di- what I discover is when I go back into a client project, discover how much I love it. Mm. Like, like yeah. I love the work. And also, you know, the, the point that you said about credibility. And also, you know what? It's like you, when you've spent 30 years doing something, you know, it gives you a much broader canvas um, and a much more, it frees you up to have like a strategic overview um, which I think is quite joyful, but also you have to stay engaged with the frontliners, I found, just so that you can be innovative. It's like if if you're too far removed from it, you don't know what the new stuff is. You don't know what the issues are. You don't know what you can't be a thought leader if you're not sort of engaged with these new issues. I am uh, interested in your thoughts as to why so few women and also uh, professionals from ethnically diverse backgrounds set up law firms and and set up sort of, you know, kind of substantive law firms. I mean, that's certainly my uh, impression of the market from the UK. And I just wondered what's your experience? And if there are things that we might be able to do to um, encourage people from underrepresented groups to really have the confidence to take the plunge and set up their own firm. Yeah, I think it's definitely the case in Australia as well that um, particularly so I think in the legal profession and if we're talking about uh, people from uh, non-English speaking backgrounds or whose parents might be from non-English speaking backgrounds, there there is a disproportionate uh, lack of founders uh, with, with those particular demographics. More women have been setting up their own firms in the employment space, and uh, I think that's something that's been uh, that's that's very encouraging. It is an area of the law, certainly here in Australia, where there are probably more female lawyers than there are male. Um, so, so it's not necessarily surprising, but not a huge amount have done that with a view to uh, necessarily creating uh, anything more than what might just be themselves and perhaps one at most two other people people supporting. And I think often it's done because those individuals have some great clients um, and, and they know that they can be quite comfortable from a lifestyle point of view and, and whatever else. And, and to that extent, if, if that is something that does get people to be more interested in founding a firm, that, that's great. I think that's excellent. But on, on the, the, the issue of perhaps the more cultural and, and, and racial and ethnic diversity, it, 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 is, it is interesting. And I think that um, the legal profession in Australia would still be seen primarily as as, as a white profession, and uh, if you look at you know the, the judiciary, it's it's predominantly white, if not uh, almost exclusively so. Um, notwithstanding reasonably good gender diversity, um, and and these these are things that that need to need to be addressed. And um, it's it's not as though 
uh, those groups have not set up businesses in plenty of other industry sectors, but why is the legal profession different? Um, so there's, there's work to be done, definitely. Do you think there's anything that, uh, you know, might encourage them? I, I mean, I, I think sort of seeing, I guess, people like us, you know, doing it and enjoying it, I, I suppose, is a, is a good start, that we're visible in the market as people who have been law firm founders um, and have driven uh, our businesses to a certain position within the market. I, I would hope that that would encourage others to think, well, you know, they can do it, I can do it. I do think availability of training, greater accessibility of, of uh, business programs to really uh, on an affordable, accessible basis to encourage sort of professionals to look at what it takes um, to become a founder and to develop a business in a substantive way, I think would be really helpful. Um, I also think understanding that the funding is there. The funding is there. If you have a good business plan and a strategy, um, you know, the money is available to do this. And, you know, you can do it in different ways. You know, people do try and completely self-fund, which could be a bit of a self-limiting exercise and also risky. You know, you can take uh, partner capital loans out. Um, you can, you know, take out other startup loans, etc. And that there are different ways of doing it. But I, I think there's maybe a, a misperception as to, you know, actually how easy it is to get the funding that you need to get started and with the right plan to actually grow. We have found our bank manager, we, we've been consistently with Barclays and they've been just tremendously supportive of us mm. when we first set up and then on sort of funding our growth journey. I don't know what your what your thoughts are on are on that, Joy D. The, the funding piece is um, everyone will be different because of naturally if people are approaching it or starting this journey at a, a particular point based on what they have done previously, that, that will influence the, the, the need for that external support. But, but I, I would completely agree. I think that... Um, the, there are numerous banks here in Australia that, uh, that that look to support the legal profession is seen as a very safe profession to, to, to be supporting. So no, there are there are numerous ways, but but the issue of funding and general financial prudence is really really important. And I know a lot of founders are naturally numbers people uh, and and have a, have you know good strong financial backing. But in my experience, they would be the minority rather than the majority. And, and I, I would certainly say, and something that I've appreciated, is that the need to have someone with really strong financial nous uh, in, in your corner and backing you, um, ideally within your business, but, but if not, you know, someone who's providing you very good counsel from a, uh, your financial strategy point of view when you're setting up your firm. Yeah. So who do you talk to? You know, like with these big strategic issues, obviously you had the chance to talk to the professor, but sort of, you know, yeah. strategic development, just founder issues, the challenges. Sometimes when I have issues, you know, I reach out to you and, you know, we have a chat about stuff. And I find that even across time zones and say thousands of miles, that is tremendously kind of reassuring and helpful. And, you know, I have other sort of other contacts as well who I can sort of share experiences with, including from the business program. And I just wanted to, so who, who do you have that you can really brainstorm with and strategize with about business and share the frustrations as well as the opportunities? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, and like you, and I, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've drawn a huge amount from the conversations that, that, that we've had. And, and, I, and I think you, there's something that's wonderfully comforting about just knowing that you're not alone. 
Um, and, and so whether it's formal advice or guidance or just that shared experience or commonality of experience can be so encouraging and um, energizing, uh, e- even if those shared experiences aren't necessarily positive, but to know that you're not in it alone. I know we, we, we act for a number of smaller firms set up at around about the same time that I set up PCS but in, in, not in the employment space. And, you know, there's cross-referral relationships and we do work for them and whatever. And the discussions that I have with their founders are, are the best. And it might not even be regular, but I know that when I speak to you know, th- those individuals and if I was to say to them, are you finding that there's a lot of this? I know that the answer is going to be yes. And I know that we're going to be able to just talk about the... The, the, the things that are, um, you know, keeping us awake at night and, and, and the challenges. And I think it's got to be, you've got to find people who are probably similarly life positioned, similarly professionally positioned, who are at the same or similar stage of that personal and professional life cycle. And in some ways, it doesn't actually really matter what it is that they're doing, but if that commonality is there, uh, almost regardless of, of industry and business, there's there's a huge amount that you can gain from those discussions. But I think having an open mind and just listening and learning from all sorts of things is uh, is hugely useful. And just finally, because, you know, the, the, the light is coming up here in the UK and I can see it's going down in Sydney. What are your thoughts on legacy? It's a, it's a, really, it's a really interesting question. And I, I think that for... Everyone who sets up a, a, a business, everyone who is a founder, they will have their own views about the, the creation of a legacy. And it, it goes back to what, why are they in the game to start off with? And, and I think there is almost an assumption for a lot of people setting up firms that it, it, it's almost somehow frowned upon or it's not uh, expected or the done thing to be going into the venture thinking that it is limited or confined only to the duration of what you're prepared to give to it. And so people go into it thinking and almost thinking that it is expected of them that they will create a legacy, that they will build something that is sustainable and that lasts well beyond them. But there's no rule book that says that you have to do that. And and if anything, the challenges of having that mindset imposes, I think, a, a far more unreasonable burden on what is already pretty burdensome for founders, rather than actually, as coarse as it might sound from a a business mindset point of view, almost taking each day or each year as it comes. That's not to say that you're not going to be strategic and you're not going to be, you know, also have a medium-term focus, but, but rather than thinking about this end goal in 30, 40, however many years' time and you know, I, I want to be able to create something that will sustain for, you know, decades or centuries. Well, how many businesses have actually been able to do that in professional services? And it's really not that many as against the businesses in, those, in, in that sector that have been founded. And, and I think there's a learning in that, that maybe founders should look at that more as something that, well, if it happens, that's great, but that's not going to be my mission. My mission is going to make this venture successful every day that I can. And whatever flows from that at the end of of that journey, well, that's what flows from it, as opposed to the I'm only making each day successful because I want that legacy outcome. 
Joy Deep, I think you may just have lifted the burden of legacy from a, a number of law firm founders. So thank you very much, just, just even for that. But thank you for such a wonderful discussion today. It's been so interesting and thoughtful and thought-provoking. And we are going to share your contact details and your LinkedIn details and all that sort of thing with this podcast. And if people want to get in touch and connect with you, they can do that. Uh, but for today, thank you again. And hopefully see you in real life very soon. Take care. Look forward to it. Thanks, Claire.